Now to him him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Go to God in prayer. God, I just want to thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us. And I just, Jesus, I just ask you that you be with my dad as he gives his sermon today. And just, just let the words flow right from you. In your name, amen. been a while. I'm just going to sit here and enjoy this for a minute. If you got anything you need to be doing, um, the world has turned another day and conflict flares up once again like a struck match. A soccer field fills with Fresh graves in Iraq. Believers are beheaded in Indonesia. A thin buzzard waits just yards away from an even thinner child in the South Sudan. And every tragedy that confronts us on an almost daily basis deepens the question, what is the good news exactly? And is anyone listening Anymore. All it takes is one day's headlines to make me wish I had gone into a more practical line of work. I would like to know how to uh, close a wound or set a bone. I would like to land an airplane full of uh, rice and chickens in the middle of the South Sudan. I would settle for knowing how to fix a broken well pump in a place dying of thirst. But I don't know how to do any of those things. I am a preacher, a public speaker of the gospel, and the gospel story is all that I have. Several years ago, I was busy with Luke the physician, imagining what it must have been like for him to leave his medical practice for the preaching life, one where he wrote about and shared the story of the good news. And the way I figure it, he didn't stop carrying around his black bag with him. He simply repacked it. He took out the scissors and the scalpel in order to make room for the medicine of the gospel. Those healing stories of God that did more to put people back together than all the potions in the world. If you remember from our time in Luke, there were beatitudes for the stricken and prophecies for the blind. There were instructions for the paralyzed and parables for the hard of hearing. 
There were acted out words of God for those who no longer trusted words. And sometimes there were questions left hanging in midair. People being forced to ponder their own answer. And sometimes there was silence when all else failed. And all in all, it was quite a story. In fact, Luke recorded that one time when it was doubted that the story was actually good news, that Jesus responded to a man in great pain, a man very dear to him, John the Baptist. In Luke 7, he says, And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Luke told us a story of a roving medical clinic wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. And then in the book of Acts, Luke told us the story of a wandering pharmacy wrapped up in the person of the Apostle Paul. And then not only in Acts, but also here in Romans, Paul had quite the spiritual apothecary where he dispensed the medicine of the Gospel. And not just then, but now. And not just me, but you. We're all sharers of this Gospel medicine. We all get to tell the story of the good news. Not that we aren't blind and deaf as well, and not that we aren't paralyzed and in pain, as would be obvious if any of us uh, took the time to look deeply into each other's lives. We are blind, deaf, lame, and lepers, but then we too get the gospel medicine. Some of us need a massive dose of this good news, an injection of hope right into our heart. Big needle. Others need the soothing balm of the gospel, smearing it over the skin of our days so we can begin to warm to the stories of the gospel, stories that still describe us, stories that know us better than we know ourselves. The strength of this gospel mends our weakness. The truth of this gospel thaws out our falseness. And the life of this gospel disinfects our death. Hearing the stories and telling the stories, we open ourselves up to the great physician who heals us with his words, who cleanses our wounds with his tears and sews us up by stitching his life into ours. We've traveled a long ways with this gospel medicine. Two years in Luke, a year in Acts, a brief time out in the Psalms, and now 16 months in Romans. And now we've come to the end, you might say, of our first missionary journey. Next on the agenda is prayer and sex, two words that should go together but normally don't. But you're going to have to wait until the new year for those. But before we wrap up Romans, this amazing book, I want to go all the way back to my first sermon on Romans and once again understand the significance of this book. The book of Romans speaks to us today as powerfully as it did in the first century. 
Most of all, it profoundly brings the knowledge of God Himself to us. Has that happened for you? In the last year and a half, has the knowledge of God increased in your life? Our goal, however, was not merely to increase your knowledge. Knowledge is important, but it's never the final purpose of reading and hearing the Bible. Our ultimate goal was that your life might be changed as a result of spending time in God's Word. And that's what we want as we went through this book. Remember, this is God's Word for you. Every word is for you. Every word applies to you. This is God's Word for Potomac Hills. So has that happened for you? In the last year and a half, has God's Word changed your life? As we open the book of Romans, we began by searching for the theme of the book. And we didn't have to look far to find it. Look at Romans 1, verse 16. We read this in our responsive reading this morning. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then verse 17 adds an explanation. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. So what's the theme of the book? The gospel. What's Paul writing about? The gospel. What's the key word of Romans? The gospel. This is what Romans is all about. And if you didn't grasp that, then I fear the rest of the book didn't make much sense to you. Romans is all about the gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ and the difference He can make when He comes into your life. In fact, the English word gospel comes from the Old English Godspell, which means good tidings, or as we would say, good news. Romans is about the gospel, God's good news. We've gone through Romans slowly, so let's do a quick review and see where we've been so far. 16 months in 60 seconds. You remember all the way back in Romans 1, Paul had begun to reveal to us our sin, our need. He had revealed to us in Romans 1, verse 18, to the end of the chapter, the wrath of God that we deserve. And then in Romans 2, he made it clear that Jew and Gentile both stood under the condemnation of God. And then Romans 3 began to teach us this glorious truth that though there is no hope for us because of our sin, yet there is hope for us through the grace and mercy of God. And so he begins to show us this teaching, this doctrine of justification by God's grace received by faith alone. And he confirms it from the Scriptures, from the Old Testament and the life of Abraham in Romans 4. And then in Romans 5, he begins to work out some of its practical applications and ramifications for us. In Romans 6, he teaches us what it means to be united to Christ. But he also makes it clear we continue to struggle against sin. He expands on that in Romans 7 and he talks about the ongoing struggle of sin, even of the believer with sin. Some of you may remember we heard from Johnny Cash that Sunday. We heard his song, The Man Comes Around even as Paul tells us about the proper role of the law in the Christian life. In Romans 8, he tells us about the power of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. In the second part of that chapter, he teaches us about God's 
gospel providence over believers. How God upholds us and sustains us and is active in our lives. How He causes all things to work together for good for those whom the Lord has called according to His purpose. And He reveals to us the teaching of election and begins to expand on the teaching of predestination. A couple of big theology words that have intense meaning. And then in Romans 9-11, through He begins to tell about God's plan of salvation and how it encompasses both Jew and Gentile. In response to all those things, at the end of Romans 11, Paul concludes his argument, his foundational theology, by lifting up a doxology, Romans 11.36, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be glory forever. Amen. Doxology literally means knowing glory. He says, in light of what we learned in Romans 1-11, through we praise God. And then in Romans 12-16, through we looked at the practical application of the Gospel. We spent all of last summer in Romans 12-1 and 2 in order to thoroughly discover the basis for living the Christian life. You remember those verses? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And Dave Crenshaw and Dave Dorst and Todd Bates and all of the elders worked throughout the summer and the fall to bring you this good news and to flesh out those verses. And it was quite interesting being in a different seat for a while to watch that. We all discovered Todd has a sense of humor. (laughs) And Frank is a lot like me except he talks different. Actually, I had things about each one of them, but it's going to get a little too embarrassing. Anyway, in logical succession, Paul encourages us to practice our theology, to put all of Romans 1-11 through into our daily lives. He says, use our gifts to serve one another in love and subject yourself to the authority over us, living by the law of love in the church and offering all of life to God. And then he concludes this section at the end of chapter 15 with a benediction. Romans 15:33. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. What's the difference between a benediction and a doxology? A benediction is from God to you. A doxology is from you to God. A benediction is towards God's people from God. A doxology is towards God from God's people. A benediction is when God blesses His people. A doxology is when His people bless God. A benediction is God's blessing on us. A doxology is our praise to God. Now, a benediction should be the end. comes at the end. We have one at the end of every one of our services. It usually says a blessing in there, which is just a modern English word for benediction. But it's not the end. There's another chapter. Paul has a few more things to say about community. And so he tacks those on in chapter 16. 
And then again, he finishes with a benediction in Romans 16, verse 20. Again, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now, second benediction should surely be the end. But it's not. Because Paul keeps writing. And so we looked at love and hope and commitment and community and we worked our way up to the end of chapter 16 where we are today finally at the end. And Paul takes the pen in his own hand and he writes the last few lines. If you remember, Tertius was his scribe and he dictated Romans to him, but now he takes the pen away from him. We know that because in 2 Thessalonians 3, he writes, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. And he mentions that he does this in every letter, presumably um, presumably, so the readers will know the letter is not a forgery. And so poised with pen in hand, he hesitated for a moment and then he began to write. And what did he write? And he writes once again about knowing glory. Another doxology, the longest of all his doxologies. One of the most beautiful, and I have entitled it, and this message, The Gospel Doxology. Logically, there is no other way he could have ended the monumental argument of Romans. There is no other way we can properly study it. So let's look at it with an eye to the kind of praise that the truths of Romans should call forth from us. After all, the glory of God should not be a new concept to most of us. New Testament is full of doxologies. We have a famous one right at Christmas time in Luke 2. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. It's a doxology. We had one, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Luke 19, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It's a doxology. The prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, we commonly call it the Lord's Prayer. It ends with a doxology. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So let's open now to Romans 16, verse 25, which Sarah has already read for you. And let's look at this doxology. Turn to verse 25 and see what God does. What God does. Should be the first blank there in your outline. Verse 25 says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. And what we see God do is strengthen you. We see the idea more fully when we understand that the root from which the word strengthen comes is from the word uh, prop, as in a prop that holds something up. You prop someone up. And God is able to make us stand, strengthening us by propping us up. Same word is used in 1 Thessalonians 3, where it says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming 
of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So that word established, it uses the same word. In this context, it refers to being mentally settled, firmly rooted in the truth of the gospel. And through the gospel, God is able to strengthen or establish the minds and hearts of believers in the truth, to settle us, to ground us, to make us firm in Him. And the thrust here at the end of Romans is that spiritually, God is able to make us stand strong and steadfast. Perhaps Paul is considering his reader's life in Rome now and in the future, knowing that great persecution would be coming, seeing their struggles, knowing that he can't do anything for them but he knows that God is able to make them stand. And for this, he offers praise, doxology, for in this, he knows God's glory. The principal thrust of verse 25 is on God strengthening his people in salvation. Since our salvation is all of God, God can certainly make his people stand. And Paul had phrased it this way in Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And because of the inescapable logic of Romans, because everything is of God, we are strengthened. And for this, Paul offers doxology, glory to God. He goes on to express his thought further in verses 25 and 26. And he tells us how God does it. How God does it. There are three primary things that God uses to strengthen us. The first, no surprise here, is gospel preaching. It says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. In referring to my gospel, Paul was not speaking of his own view of the gospel. His gospel is the same as Peter's gospel, the same as John's gospel, the same as the gospel preached by all the apostles the divinely revealed gospel of Jesus Christ. As he explained to the believers in the church in Galatia, in Galatians 1, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The only gospel of God that strengthens men and women is the gospel that proclaims Christ. The major theme of Scripture is is Jesus Christ. Paul committed his life to preaching Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, he said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. In his second letter to the church at Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 4, he said, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And earlier in Romans, in Romans 10, we saw that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. It's hard to separate the Word of Christ from the person of Christ. John 1.1 starts by telling us that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus existed from the very beginning as the Word. He was the ultimate communication of God. And he longed to communicate to us. So he came into the world. The Apostle John was able to rejoice 
later on in his gospel with these words, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And therefore, our knowledge of Jesus is the means of being strengthened. Key to standing strong is making Jesus the center of everything. We should be constantly and consistently thinking about, considering, reflecting on the story of Jesus. Then we will be able to stand, for it's Jesus who strengthens us. If you've been weak, if you've been struggling in your faith, focus on Jesus. Read about him. Think about him. Make the Gospels your spiritual meat and potatoes, the sustenance, the nourishment of your life. It starts with the proclaiming of Christ, gospel preaching. The second thing God uses to strengthen us is the revelation of the mystery. It's a hard phrase. It's given to us in the last part of verse 25. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. In other words, we're strengthened as this mystery is opened to us. How so? Part of the answer lies in the word mystery, which the New Testament does not mean mysterious as the English word implies, but rather a secret that was once kept hidden but is now revealed. Specifically, it refers to a part of God's truth that was not revealed or was partially revealed in the Old Testament. There's a sense in which the sweep and focus of the gospel was not clear. It remained hidden until the coming of Christ. If you remember, even when he was here, his own disciples didn't fully understand before the cross and resurrection that he, the Messiah, would be the suffering servant, would die a horrible death to redeem lost sinners. They didn't get that until after the cross and resurrection, even though he had told them several times. So here in Romans, a great secret has been thrown wide open to believers by the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the mystery of Jesus. Paul talks about that in Colossians 1. He says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. God has given Jesus to us through the virgin birth, through His absolutely perfect earthly life, through His substitutionary death for us, through His breaking the bonds of death and ascending to the right hand of the Father. And thus the mystery has been revealed to us. We cannot understand everything about it this side of heaven, yet here and now we can understand that what was hidden for ages past has now been made known. And this amazing truth is the signature of the Christian life, that I am in Christ and He is in me. No other religion knows anything of this. It is our mystery. The third thing God uses to strengthen us is the prophetic writings. The end of uh, verse, or in verse 26 there. And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. 
Yet if this gospel was hidden for a long age, it has now been disclosed and has been made known to all nations. And here it sounds as if this gospel has been disclosed through the prophetic writings, that is, through the scriptures, through the Old Testament. So on one hand, the gospel has been hidden in ages past. On the other hand, it's been prophesied in ages past. Hidden or prophesied? How can both of those things be true at the same time? Well, part of the answer lies in the ways in which the gospel is predicted in the Old Testament. So many of the predictions are wrapped up in types or models of what is to come. After the fact, we can see how Jesus is the true temple, the ultimate meeting place between God and His sinful image bearers. How He is the true Passover lamb, the sacrifice for our sins. How He is the ultimate prophet who brings God's Word to us in the flesh. How He is the ultimate priest who stands between us and God. How He is the ultimate King who rules over us and all creation forever. Indeed, we discover many clues along the way. The fact remains, however, that no one expected the same person to fulfill all of these images and types in Himself. Many Jews in the first century expected two messiahs, one kingly, the other priestly. But we see Jesus and his gospel comprehensively predicted, hidden for long ages, but now disclosed. And the extent of the mystery that's disclosed is underlined by the fact that it includes both Jews and Gentiles. (coughs) Paul explains in Ephesians 3, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There were explicit hints of this in the Old Testament. All the way back in Genesis 12, God's word to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And there are similar promises that happen in Genesis 18 and 22. The very bloodline of Christ has a number of Gentile women in it. However, it's a dim secret in Old Testament times. But verse 26 emphasizes this opening of the mystery to the Gentiles, which has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings made known to all nations. The mystery is nothing less than a miracle. God's salvation extends to all races. And those who receive it are in Christ and He is in them. Moreover, all Jewish and Gentile believers are brothers and sisters together. So we know what God does. He's able to strengthen us. And we know how He does it through gospel preaching, through the mystery of Christ as Lord and Savior, and through the Scriptures. So the next question is why God does it. Look again at verse 26. It says, But it has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. 
It's not the first time we've seen that phrase. It just so happened to be in our responsive reading this morning from Romans 1.5. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. And what Paul's letter to the Romans affirms is he is about the obedience of faith. He seeks to bring about the obedience of faith among the Romans. Isn't that an odd phrase? The obedience of faith? Why doesn't he say, I'm seeking to bring about faith? Or why doesn't he say, I'm seeking to bring about obedience? Why does he say the obedience of faith? He says the obedience of faith is the obedience which consists of faith. If you are obedient, you have faith. And what Paul is saying is that faith is a function of obedience. Obedience is a function of faith. They go together. It's not trust and obey. It's trust obey. One word. In other words, you are obedient by having faith. The great theologian John Murray wrote about this phrase that faith uh, is regarded as an act of obedience. A commitment to the gospel of Christ. The implications of this, the results of this, are incredibly important to us. In many ways in our postmodern world, the gospel is offered as something that's going to help you. It will fix your relationships. It will help you in your loneliness. It will connect you in, out of your disconnectedness. It will enable you to have direction in your life. It will make you feel happy. And those things are true. The gospel does all those things. But it does them because it does something else first. The gospel of God's Son is God's answer to our rebellion against Him. The gospel isn't primarily designed to make you happy. In fact, a lot of times it makes you miserable first. It's not primarily designed to give you direction or to fix your broken relationships. It's primarily designed to fix your broken relationship with God that is caused by your rebellion against God. That's the primary purpose of the gospel. Everything else flows out of that. And this rebellion is what the Bible calls sin. Church growth people tell you you're not supposed to use that word. People don't like it. Too bad. I, you know, Jesus uses that word a lot. He must have thought it was important. Sin is refusal to listen to God. It's turning your back on God and doing what you want. The gospel, and hear me now, is not an offering to fix your unhappiness or loneliness or relationships. It's God's only remedy for sin, the source of all those other issues. It's God's command that we be reconciled to Him. In the Gospel, we are commanded to put our faith in God's Son. And when we obey the command and exercise faith, we have the obedience of faith. You know, Jesus was humiliated in weakness. He was made a bond slave Himself. And forevermore, has been given power and glory to rule by the Spirit of God. Remember who Paul's writing to? He's writing to the Romans. 
the proudest, most powerful city on earth, full of man's glory. I'm sure the risk would verify if you go to Rome today, there are statues all over to all sorts of great things that the Romans have done for themselves. And monuments and great buildings. It's full of man's glory. Their emperor is called Caesar. And he tells them, Paul tells them, that God commands all the nations, all the Gentiles, the Romans, them, to put their faith in the only message that can help them, the message of the gospel of God's grace. So we know what God does. He's able to strengthen us. And we know how He does it through the gospel, through preaching, through the scriptures. We know why God does it. For the obedience of faith. So the last question would be, for whom God does it? Look at verse 27. For whom God does it? To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. These closing three verses of Romans are extraordinary. God is introduced as the one who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel. And then he's reintroduced in verse 27 to the only wise God be glory forevermore. So in this context, the wisdom of God presupposed in the expression to the only wise God is displayed in God's ability to establish the Roman Christians by Paul's gospel. Look first at this phrase, to the only wise God. Our God is the only God. There is none but Him. He's the only wise God. And in affirming that, I'm reminded that whatever God is, He is infinitely. And therefore, God is infinite wisdom. And wisdom, among other things, is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by perfect means. And this God does without any limits or limitations other than His own character. And in His wisdom, God has made it possible for those who are once bound by their own sinful depravity to be freed from their sins and to know the throne of God as our eternal home. He has made it possible for us to be adopted as His own sons and daughters. One may wonder why Paul doesn't say to the only powerful God or the only loving God or the only gracious God because he does have a lot of things to say about those attributes of God in his letters including this one. But perhaps he calls attention here to God's wisdom in order to emphasize that only an infinitely wise God could design and accomplish such a plan of redemption. Of course, that wisdom, that plan of redemption comes to us through Jesus Christ which is the last phrase there in the verse. It's through Jesus Christ that God supremely revealed not only His great grace, but His great wisdom. And Paul is giving glory to the wisdom of God's plan, which is set forth in these verses. Paul is saying uh, that the gospel that he has proclaimed is about a redemptive event that God had been working on from eternity past, but had fully revealed in Jesus Christ. And yes, the Scriptures of the prophets had witness to it. He makes that clear. But it hadn't fully been revealed. It couldn't be fully understood except in Jesus Christ. And the people of God looked at Jesus Christ and they said, now I understand what that passage about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 means. Now I understand what that passage about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 means. Now I understand what the cornerstone in Psalm 118 means 
and what being a priest forever in Psalm 110 means and what the Lord's anointed is in Psalm 2. Now I see what God has done through Jesus Christ. I understand what the prophets were talking about. And Paul says in this we see the wisdom of God. This plan, we never would have guessed this plan. If you had gone all the way back to the time of Abraham, to Genesis 12, you know, and sat down with somebody from Abraham's family and said, okay, now explain this to me. What's the plan of God going to be? Nobody would have said, well, here's how it's going to happen. God is going to send His only Son into the world. He's going to be a human being just like us, God in the flesh. And He's going to die in our place. And He's going to assume our guilt and take our sins. And He's going to bear that sin and guilt on our behalf. And He's going to die and be buried. And then He's going to be raised again from the dead on the third day. And He's going to ascend to heaven on high. And He's going to take us with Him. They wouldn't have said that. Nobody would have been given, been able to give you that kind of full disclosure of the gospel. The prophets, even as they wrote, Peter tells us, strained to see the truth that they were writing about. It was beyond their full comprehension. Nobody would have guessed this plan. The wisdom of this plan is overwhelming. He is the only wise God. You can't be impressed too much with God's wisdom. Unless you're impressed with the wisdom of God, you won't be able to be confident in those experiences in your life where you scratch your head and wonder what in the world's going on. Because if you can't believe in the wisdom of God as it's displayed in the plan of God, you won't be able to believe in the wisdom of God in your own life when the lights go out. And it's so interesting that this very praise to God for His wisdom, ends up giving us confidence. Because we realize now that it's this great and powerful and wise God who is at work in the plan of salvation and who is at work in our lives. And because God is at work and because He's the infinitely wise God, we don't have to have all the answers to all the questions. We just need to know that a wise and powerful God is behind Him. Working them for our good. And so even this doxology results in strengthening the people of God. So what are we going to learn from all this? If you look at the doxology, you'll see Paul focuses on the glory of God. The glory of God has been discounted in our generation. Man, the sinner is big. God the Savior is small. Man is central. God is peripheral. Man is important. God is way down the list of important things in our culture today. And Paul is drawing our attention to the glory of God in this doxology. And with Paul, we need to be overwhelmed at the glory of God. But how often do we miss that perspective? We focus on the glory of here and now and our glory. Have any of you seen the movie Rent? You don't have to answer that if you don't want to. It's not a Christian movie. It uses a lot of bad words. exalts the whole gay culture and lots of things we wouldn't agree with. The music, however, is phenomenal. 
Rent is set among the artists, addicts, addicts, prostitutes, and street people of New York City's East Village, commonly known as the Lower East Side. The leading character is a documentary filmmaker who serves as the narrator, and he's the only character who's not gay, HIV positive, a woman, or a minority. The other leading characters are a homeless computer hacker fired by MIT, who is now the resident philosopher, a drug-addicted dancer in an S&M club who's suffering from AIDS, whom everyone's trying to save, a Latino street drummer transvestite named Angel, who gets the dramatic death scene near the end, a lesbian performance artist who lives with her wealthy black lesbian attorney, and a rock singer-songwriter who's a former junkie, now HIV positive, who's desperately trying to write his masterpiece song before he dies. I know, just the kind of folks you hang out with. <laughs> Actually, Rent is a modern-day retelling of Puccini's masterpiece opera, La Boheme, much as West Side Story was a retelling of Romeo and Juliet. Its virtues lie in the fact that race, sexual orientation, and T-cell count present no barriers to friendship. In fact, I think a musical like Rent, filled with screwed up people who know they're screwed up, is really helpful for those of us who foolishly think we've got it all together and we've taken God's grace for granted. The singer-songwriter in the movie is named Roger. And he has this great song near the beginning of the movie about wanting to write his last great song. I'd like you to listen to it very carefully. One song, glory, one song before I go, glory, one song to leave behind, find one song, one last refrain, glory, from the pretty boy front man who wasted opportunity, one song, he had the world at his feet, glory in the eyes of a young girl, a young girl, find glory beyond the cheap colored lights, one song before the sun sets, glory on another empty life, time flies, time Before the virus takes hold, glory like a sunset. One song to redeem this empty life. Thank you. It's a hauntingly beautiful song. But it's all about what? Glory. Glory for whom? Glory for Roger. And aren't we all somewhat like Roger? We may not be singer-songwriters who want to write that one great song before we die. But deep down, we wouldn't mind the glory part. We want glory. We want to be remembered for something great. And if you throw in a little bit of fame and wealth, well, we'll take that too. Why? Because we're idolaters. Now that we've become familiar with doxology, with knowing glory, 
We want it. And we want it for ourselves, not for God. And that is why one of those verses that we spent all that time on last summer is so important. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. When you're conforming to this world, you want the glory. When you're being transformed by the gospel, you give the glory to God. So is it give glory to Roger or Dave or Mark or Todd or Sue or Sarah or you? Or is it to God alone be the glory? Glory to me or glory to God? A week before Christmas, that would be a good question to answer. I'm going to give you a moment to think about it and then we'll close in prayer.